From the Center for New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about pivotal moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Ilan Goldenberg, the director of CNAS's Middle East Security Program. Protecting the country from terrorist threats is a multi-pronged, multifaceted mission. Rooting out extremists on the ground is costly and difficult. Rooting them out in cyberspace can sometimes feel next to impossible, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Over the years, there have been a number of attacks on Western targets that have been coordinated online, like in Paris. It's all about multiple attacks and causing mass casualties. In Brussels. Authorities say in custody, Abdeslam cooperated, admitting to planning other attacks, all while hiding in Molenbeek. Kara Frederick has been at the forefront of protecting against these threats, both on the ground in Afghanistan and online. She served in the intelligence community as a targeter and an analyst. Later, she would continue tracking terrorists while working at Facebook. You're looking at patterns of attacks and the way people use digital platforms before, after, and during attacks, and making sure that that doesn't happen on your particular platform. Now she's a fellow at CNAS for the Technology and National Security Program. She's our guest today. So Kara, uh, you didn't always want to be a, a national security professional. You started out doing something very different. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. I did. So my first love was soccer. And I was a McDonald's All-American in high school. And my dream was to be the next Mia Hamm. I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Leaves it off. Here's Mia Hamm. In the box. The shot. Go. She's got the record. So I went to the best soccer school that recruited me. I had one of those soccer is life kind of posters on the wall when I was a kid. But the women's professional league, it actually folded when I was in college. The Women's United Soccer Association, the WUSA, has shut down operations. So I was bereft. I didn't have anything else to do. And then the... The siren song of national security, which had always called to me. My dad was a, a Marine Corps helicopter pilot for 33 years. Um, that kind of came out a little stronger, and I ended up taking a University of Virginia fellowship in the UK, and I decided I could use that as a disguise to really advance my soccer career and, and play soccer overseas. So I ended up playing for this tiny team called Leicester City, uh, and then after that, when I moved to London for grad school, I played for Fulham FC, and then eventually sat the bench for Chelsea, which is a pretty famous football team, but it wasn't all that. I mean, somebody's mother and their dog often came to watch us, and that was about it. And there was no money in it, but um, then I decided I would have to kind of work for a living and get a real job and decided to uh, try to be a Marine like my dad. Okay, so then you, you know, after the adventure in soccer doesn't work out, you move on and start doing, uh, you know, national security and foreign policy. Do you, you join the Marine Corps? So I didn't. I signed up to join officer candidate school while I was still playing for Chelsea. And I ended up hurting my knee pretty badly. And at the same time, my father was sitting next to a woman and he was sort of talking me up as, uh, you know, dads are wont to do. And she turned to him and she said, she sounds like exactly the type of person we need in the intelligence community.
So she handed him a card, and I looked at the card, and on the email was, uh, it turned out she was the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So he handed me the card when I was back from a grad school break, and I was sort of like, what is this DIA? I have never heard of this. Is this, you know, the poor man's version of CIA? I'm not sure. But I ended up sending her an email, and miraculously, she wrote me back. And a few days later, when I was back in London, the director of the counterterrorism division got in touch, and she said, you know, I, I saw your student-athlete background. I myself played soccer in the ACC, and I want winners on my team. I want somebody who knows, you know, how to take a licking and get back up and how to win. And we were in the middle of two wars at the time, and I figured, all right, if I want to continue winning, then I might as well do it for the United States of America overseas, and uh, decided to sign on the dotted line. Awesome. So what year is this? So this was in 2009. So just during the financial crisis. So I kind of escaped um, a little bit of that recession. Yeah. And it is the time when we still have the war in Afghanistan. With a bad situation getting worse in Afghanistan, President Barack Obama has made his first troop decision, signing off on sending about 17,000 Marines and soldiers there in the coming months. We still have the war in Iraq. Suicide bombers used cars as weapons, unleashing one blast after another across Baghdad. Iraqi forces are struggling to take a frontline role in security before U.S. forces begin to pull out next year. You're working for the Defense Intelligence Agency. You know, you and I know what that is, but nobody else does. So like, <laughs> many of our listeners might not. Maybe just tell us, like, what is the DIA? Yeah, so the way it was described to me, and I thought this was pretty accurate, is the DIA is kind of the redheaded stepchild of the intelligence community, but it has a very specific function. So at the time, we were conducting counterterrorism operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the CIA does a lot of work there, but what people don't know is that there's a lot of defense civilian intelligence analysts who also do the same thing. So instead of having our customer be the president, like the CIA, our customer is the secretary of defense. Our customers are warfighters. So when we go out there, we were sort of the first cohort of Stanley McChrystal's theory that intelligence drives operations. So we realized what we had to do was form a network that was better than the enemy's network. If in Mosul, Iraq, somebody stepped on your toe, you knew it in Kirkuk instantaneously. And this whole intelligence and operations fusions was something that really worked on the ground in Afghanistan. We embedded civilian intelligence analysts with tier one special operations units and let the civilian intelligence analysts sort of guide the commandos in terms of where to go, how to target, who the bad guys were, where they were, and how to get after them and remove them from the battle space. That's part of the DIA's job. Right. So basically what you're saying is like, if you're fighting on the ground, you need intelligence on like... Who's the bad guy who's standing like right over there who like we need to go after as opposed to, you know, what does Vladimir Putin think about the world? Is that basically like the difference? Exactly. And mm -hmm. DIA does have those policy mechanisms, too. You know, you have your policy analysts as well. But we were tactical intelligence analysts. Um, my job was to be in the intelligence operations section and essentially find needles in haystacks. And for me, uh, you know, I walked through the door of the intelligence community my first First real job ever in January. And by the summer, I was on a C-130 on my way to Afghanistan. You don't get that kind of experience anywhere else. Okay, so let's talk about that. You deployed to Afghanistan 
for DIA, what are you doing there? Yeah, so three deployments to Afghanistan with DIA, um, working alongside special operations units. So I worked for tier one special operations units for the Navy and for the Army in a bunch of different places. I was technically a target developer. So I would go there and as a senior intelligence analyst, basically tell the ones who are actually conducting the operations why this guy is bad, where he's likely to be, and help them basically get after them in a kinetic way. Okay, so basically you have these special operators, their job is to frankly go kill terrorists. And your job is to Tell them where the terrorists are. Yep. Uh, we call it high value targeting. Um, so I was. I'm trying uh, <laughs> to translate it to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there is lethal action involved, um, but yeah. we also need to detain the bad guys too at times. Right, so you, you need to go in and physically grab them and bring them back to places where you can ask them questions, where uh, these questions can give you valuable intelligence insights in terms of where a next attack is going to be. What we would call external operations cell is doing to plan attacks on America, on the homeland. So my job was basically to study those bad guys, study their patterns of life, study their social networks, um, put all the analysis together. Everyone basically basically has this image of Carrie Madison from Homeland putting threads of green thread and, you know, and whatnot and sort of having that web of humans. We put Roya Hamad on the board? Yeah, we put them all up. No, if we can only hear what they're saying. And we do do that in a way, um, but obviously it's all digital and you contextualize all of that information, make assessments and basically figure out where the bad guys are, what they're liable to be doing and help America exercise and project its power and effects against them. So how does that feel? I imagine, you know, being a person who tells people like, you know, where to send drones, who to target. You know, that's a lot of responsibility. Like, how does that feel, especially being you know, a relatively young person, like earlier in your career, making these kinds of recommendations and decisions? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think that's the most daunting aspect of it. The gravity of what you're doing, I think, really hits you when you're, you're looking at those screens and you're overseas, and you really know that you have to be right. There was many times where, as the senior intelligence analyst out there, you're sitting at the right hand of the commander, and you're expected to be the one who gives him the best information, who helps him direct his decision-making. Especially when you're dealing with drone cells and developing targets, the commander on so many occasions, I remember on one in particular, it was pretty hairy, what we call it in gaining a tight intel picture. And our intel picture, we thought, was as tight as we could have possibly got it. What does that it, but, mean, getting it tight intelligence? Yep, so it means basically making sure that your assessment is as airtight as possible. Um, so the commander, uh, given that you're sitting at his right hand, will turn to you and he'll say, Kara, is this our guy? And you have to look him in the eye and you have to say, yeah, it's him. And then, you know, you're dealing with life and death in that situation. So, so yeah, it's a heavy burden to bear, but I think there's a lot of people up to the task, and I was at the time. Did you ever have a moment when you weren't sure or where there was disagreement inside from different analysts and you're trying to make a decision like this weighty and you just don't know? Absolutely. I think, you know, the hallmark of a good intelligence analyst is humility. 
there's always the idea that you could be wrong and, you know, you have to live with that. So are there any specific experiences like from that time period that stand out that sort of bring this all together? You know, there was a newer target one time when we were in Afghanistan that popped up and it looked like he was making these really serious threats. And when you get a piece of intel where this brand new target sort of says, oh, yeah, I want to, you know, kill everybody. And then the whole mechanism sort of springs to action to ferret that out. I think those are the times where you really have to be like, hey, you know, sir, it's not him. Uh, You know, so I've had in one instance, the commander turn to me and say, this is a target of opportunity. We either go now or we lose this guy forever. And I'm sitting there like, okay, so he's not on my radar. This is nobody that I've ever heard of. And yet, if he pulls off an attack against the United States and we don't get him, then that's on my head. So you're weighing those two things, but you can't let your emotions get in the way and your sort of cold professionalism takes over. And I turned to the commander and I said, sir, it's not him. And, um, yeah, it turned out to be right. So, uh, yeah, I I think, you know, if an attack had happened and I had been wrong, I would have lived with that for the rest of my life. And it would have been a lot tougher. But in this instance, I was correct. So I'll take that with me, too. Yeah. So anyway, we move on from there and uh, you leave DOD for the private sector and you go to work for Facebook. So maybe tell us what causes you to sort of decide to move in that direction. Yeah. So, uh, you know, especially at the time, Facebook and Silicon Valley in general, I think, is so heavily romanticized. And people were, were sort of like the, the badge of success is to work at a tech company, is to change the world in a digital way. And so when Facebook came knocking, um, saying that they really needed somebody to run their counterterrorism analysis team for global security, I decided that it was too much of a, a lure to say no. And I remember someone asking me when I left Uh, my job with Naval Special Warfare, they were like, you're going to regret it when something happens. You're going to regret leaving because you know you could have helped. And I thought, no, I could do this in a different way. And that's very much what Facebook was. Um, Right before I got there in February of 2016, ISIS had released a video directly targeting Mark Zuckerberg and the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey. The 25-minute video shows terrorist hackers stealing accounts and making death threats in response to the social media giant's efforts to suppress terror recruitment online. Earlier this month, Twitter announced its suspension of 125,000 accounts. So I found that, you know, I could sort of help in a different way. Maybe not just protecting troops and warfighters and people back in the homeland in in a very literal way, but to actually go there and make sure that America projected power in a different way. And that was through some of our economic and digital platforms. So I ended up running the counterterrorism analysis team for global security at Facebook. And my job was to surface high quality, publicly available information to help improve our platform based reactions. Explain that in English. Exactly. (laughs) I was waiting for that. Um, So (laughs) So the idea was when you're looking at trying to get bad stuff off the digital platform, you have a ton of people working in all capacities. You have programmers working on the back end, engineers and analysts identifying and trying to predict digital signals, the translators in between them. Um, You have people that are sort of putting it all together and anticipating what new threats are gonna be. So in the counterterrorism context, there's 
a couple areas where one person is in charge of a bunch of things, but you, it's really a like all of platform cross-functional effort. Um, so my little piece of the pie was to provide context and to talk to those engineers to make sure everything that happened on Facebook itself was more efficient when it came to certain counterterrorism problems. So I wasn't just looking at what was happening on Facebook. I was looking at what was happening on Twitter. I was looking at what was happening on YouTube. I was looking at what was happening on the news. The latest U.S. intelligence figures show that terrorists are increasing their presence online, and in particular, social media, to try and expand their networks. So, This is what you need to look out for. This is how the bad guys work. This is what they might be planning on doing, and this is what we need to anticipate. And they were, in turn, able to build little things, combinations of machine and human review to figure out how to make the platform hostile to terrorist actors. And so when you're working at Facebook, what do you worry terrorists are going to do on the platform? Yeah, so you want to make sure that, number one, terrorists aren't operating on there, you know, that they're not sending messages to other terrorists saying, oh, let's meet at this point and, you know, let's plan this attack, that kind of thing. So first and foremost, you do not have that happen. And Facebook did a good job in encapsulating that philosophy in our charge as counterterrorism analysts, which was make the platform hostile to terrorist actors. You want all of terrorism, all of terrorist propaganda, terrorists in general. There's no room for that on Facebook. And our job was to make sure that there was So you're finding no certain words, looking at certain types of patterns of behavior, trying to build out technology that can detect these types of things and then toss it off the network or even find these people and then be able to share that with law enforcement, things like that? There's another separate mechanism for yeah. sharing with law enforcement. But the idea is essentially to figure out how these bad actors work, what that looks like today, what that looks like five years from now, what that looks like 10 years from now, and then talk to the programmers and make sure that they are doing everything they can to automate the fact that they don't exist on the platform. Were there specific experiences and examples and times where you had a terrorist attack, you had to respond? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so my job was I basically, everywhere I went, I had to wear a backpack with my laptop in it because you were liable to get a phone call at a moment's notice. I remember one time I was at a, a wedding brunch uh, with my little backpack on, laptop safely tucked inside, and uh, my phone and my watch and everything just started going off. So I had to excuse myself and have about a 45-minute conversation outside this wedding brunch venue about how an ISIS video that was threatening our CEO was actually fake. And so we were able to kind of see, yeah, this is not a credible threat, and then I could go back and, and have another mimosa. But it was in December of 2016 when the Berlin truck attack happened. In an instant tonight, tidings of joy turned to screams of horror. Amidst the holiday lights and Christmas... So Christmas markets, people are sort of milling about. Um, it was before a lot of the concrete barriers had been erected, and ISIS had been exhorting some of their followers to take anything they could, and trucks and vehicles were part of it, and sort of mow down civilians and conduct terrorist attacks in that capacity. The truck plowed at speed through the market. 
wooden stalls splintered and dozens of people caught up in the mayhem. And where are you at the time? So I am sitting at Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park, California, and I basically turn on the news and see that this happened. The truck had Polish number plates. A body found in the cab is thought to be that of its Polish driver, but a masked man behind the wheel escaped on foot. And the first thing, you know, your boss is pinging you, what, is this an accident? Is this real? What happened? The motive of the attack is yet to be confirmed. And then, you know, you do enough research where you realize, no, ISIS actually called for this. It happened using the techniques, tactics and procedures that they um, admonished their followers to use. So more than likely, this is looking like a terrorist incident. An ISIS follower ran through a crowd at a Bastille Day celebration in Nice, France in July. And ISIS has since urged its followers to copy the Nice attack in Europe and the U.S. So then your team leaps into action and you basically have to figure out, is this guy on Facebook and sort of see how we did this. And you have to sort of find that needle in a haystack thing. Like, so you're, make like, sure. in this particular case, you're actually sitting at headquarters or like walk us through the actual experience. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, we're always refreshing our feeds yeah. in terms of we have a lot of social media aggregators that we use to make sure that we're on top of the latest intel mm -hmm. and we're parsed out into certain regions of the world so you have to make sure you're talking to the person who's looking at in this instance the european slice of the pie um, so i'm talking to my counterpart on that team and i'm asking him is he on our radar what do we know about him that kind of thing uh no a uh, quick scrub shows that he doesn't have a presence here okay then i'm communicating to my boss he doesn't have a presence here i'm drawing up things for the executives that say Here's the intent. Here's what we think happened. Here are the amount of people that are killed. This is what it looked like. Here's our assessment. We assess right now based off of ISIS directives, based off of this person who we have open source intelligence on from other places, uh, that he is likely to have conducted a terrorist attack. And that kicks in. Then you're talking to your policy people. Then you're sort of saying, okay, what do we do? We have to make sure that we're not providing an opportunity for this guy to have ever had a voice, that there's no propaganda related to any of this on the platform. So you sort of kick in your content moderators, you kick in your policy people, you kick in your global security people, and you're on a line. Um, I, at this point, I think I was actually sitting in my apartment with my headphones in um, on my bed, you know, talking with everyone from around the world. And you're just talking to each other, figuring out what happened, fine tuning your analysis so that by the time it gets to your executive level, they know exactly what happened as we see it at Facebook. So I'm curious, you know, how does this experience at Facebook working with the corporation differ from like working for the U.S. government? Were you surprised at how much impact you were able to sort of have at Facebook? Or in the retrospect, you really think like the impact you were having most was when you're actually like hunting down terrorists in like Afghanistan. How do you weigh those things? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why people with backgrounds in the intelligence community 
and targeters in particular are attractive and, and should work in these companies is because you know both sides. Um, you have those critical thinking abilities. You know how to work under pressure in moments of intense gravity when you know lives are on the line. And this whole digital landscape is becoming increasingly important and it matters in the world today. I don't want to say it matters more than you know the wars that we're fighting, but there are new levers of power that both the bad guys and the good guys are pulling on, and the digital space is critical. Uh, back in 2014, when ISIS was you know, delivering their digital propaganda, people were like, wow, this is so slick, this is insane, I can't believe they're doing things like this. The terror group now has its own multilingual media arm, Al Hayat, which is behind the creation and distribution of glossy magazines and highly produced slick videos. Now this is the new normal. And, and not only are we dealing with it in the counterterrorism context, but also in the human rights context too. So these massive platforms that were a liberalizing force, the reality is really complicated now. Um, they're not just used for good. Uh, Facebook was built for social good. Now they're also used to propagate evil in the world. If ISIS recruiting videos seem to be everywhere, it's because they've mastered the use of the internet. Technology can be used for good and it can be used for ill. And I think bad actors are always looking to use technology for their ends. They don't need big numbers. They're trying to appeal to small numbers, which unfortunately in the, in the terrorism business is, is all it takes. This is actually a good transition over to your experiences at CNAS. I know one of the big projects you're working on involves what we call high-tech illiberalism, you know, how illiberal governments and repressive regimes are using technology to suppress democracy. We always thought technology was going to help democracy, but it works both ways. So I think there's a growing contest between free societies and illiberal regimes. And it's important to note, by some estimations, by 2030, 500 billion devices are expected to be connected to the Internet. And the people that can control, process, and exploit that information, they're going to have inordinate power, no matter who they are. If they're one big big social media company or if they're an authoritarian government. Um, but we are worried about what authoritarian governments are doing with this technology. And China is at the forefront of attempting to exploit and use that information for enforcing control through messaging, through monitoring, using means of digital surveillance uh, like facial recognition. Um, they're using pattern detection to try and influence behavior. A lot of this data aggregation from a bunch of sources that they're syncing um, if interoperability, the ability for systems to talk to each other and then detect those anomalies gets better, if those anomalies are dissidents and they're using that technology to put them in re-education camps, then we have a problem. Improving lives, increasing connectivity across the world. That's the great promise offered by data-driven technology. Stop killing our children! Stop killing our children! But in China, it also promises greater state control and abuse of power. So that brings us to Xinjiang, where by some estimates, 1.5 million Uyghurs are imprisoned in re-education camps. And Chinese officials use a mix of high-tech and low-tech to put them there. So there's some human analysis, you know, people sort of minders sitting um, in buildings, looking at people, um, writing down what they're doing and reporting them to the authorities. But there's also cameras everywhere in gas stations with license plate readers um, at the front and back entrances of people's homes. 
even by some reports in the personal bathrooms of people deemed suspicious. The system alerts authorities if targeted individuals stray 300 meters beyond their home. So what the authorities do is they aggregate these behavioral data in addition to collecting um, biometrics, so iris scans, cheek swabs, eyelash samples. In one report, a 360-degree capture of the way somebody walked was actually collected. So they take all of that and they use it to identify abnormalities or you know deviations from what they would think would be a normal pattern of life for a normal good citizen. Um, one of the things is if people go to the mosque too often if they pray too much. Um, so the results of this are extra scrutiny. So a possible ticket to the re-education camps where they're imprisoned. So the use of this technology to sort of enable and aid and abet the imprisonment of other human beings is uh, something we need to watch out for. It's an abuse, clearly, of this technology. And what I find so interesting about that is that, you know, you as a targeter sitting in Afghanistan watching all these different patterns of behavior and all this different intelligence that's coming in from different pieces of information. And then you're saying, based on all that information, this person might be a terrorist and we need to watch them. And then a Chinese analyst for the government is sitting there looking at very similar pieces of technology and information. And they're saying, based on all this, you know, this person might be, you know, abnormal and they need to go to a re-education camp. And it's a very good example of how you see that same technology that might be used for good in some cases being used for really other problematic things in others. And I think that's why it's so important to impress upon the world that America has a system of governance with those checks and balances that helps prevent the abuse of this kind of thing. It is important for us to articulate our values and our, you know, those principles to draw attention to potential facial recognition abuses and in engaged citizenry. A lot of these NGOs and people who can sort of say, hey, we don't think this is being used properly. We're going to place pressure on our city councils to say, no, there's a moratorium on use of facial recognition until we get this right, until we make sure when these systems are deployed, they're as free from algorithmic bias and false positives and all of the problems that we can have with these technical systems that aren't fully baked yet. So I think it's very, very important to highlight the difference between America and China when we use these technologies. And it's also important that we keep the tide in our favor, that we gather our friends around ourselves and um, you know, have these rules of the road that we set based off of democratic principles so the authoritarians can't do it for us and show the rest of the world how they want technology to be used. We need to lead the way here. So how do we do that? Good question. Um, so... There's a lot of things in the works right now. Part of it is really making sure these systems are strong. Um, so that's first and foremost. Um, I think we have to draw attention to the fact that this is happening in China, uh, too. Um, and then second, we need to, to really impose costs on any entities that are complicit in these gross human rights abuses. So there's the Thermo Fisher case that the New York Times reported on uh, in February of 2019. Um, they were supplying equipment for use in Xinjiang. And when they were outed, um, when they received public scrutiny, they stopped supplying this DNA equipment to uh, Xinjiang. So it's things like that. Um, naming and shaming is, is helpful. Um, but this is, you know, we're at a, a nascent stage in the game. And at CNAS, with our Digital Freedom Forum, we're attempting to actually have a clear set of policy recommendations in order to really get after this problem and find a way forward for America because we do need to lead the way. 
Kara Frederick is a fellow at CNAS working in the Technology and National Security Program. This episode concludes Season 2 of Stories from the Back Channel. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and if you've missed any episode, please go back and check out our podcasts. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. Thank you for listening.